Well, good morning. Good to see everybody here this morning. Uh, just for fun, just for fun, did anybody happen to notice an error in the bulletin, in today's bulletin? I see one hand, two hands, three hands. Uh, what was the error? But maybe there's more than one, but I noticed one. What was? I don't think there's 78 chapters in Okay, that had me a little worried because I, I thought we were nearing the end of Second Corinthians, but there's 78 chapters. We're going to be here a long time, though. But that was, uh, I don't know if that's my fault or Michelle's fault. I give her the sermon information. I don't know if she just cuts and pastes it in there and doesn't pay attention or if she inputs it. Hopefully she inputs it and it's her error and not mine. But I, I thought that was a good test to see because I know um, there's important information in the bulletin. And I hope that you take the time to read it from front to back so you don't miss anything. Well, we are going to um, be talking about money. And I'll introduce that in a second. But when uh, Noah does a great job, the worship team at choosing songs that really fortify the, the scriptural passage of the sermon. And I send him my sermon notes well in advance, and if I don't, he'll let me know it, uh, that I need to get those to him as soon as possible. And so I was kind of, and I'll be curious, because we'll be here for a little while, I'll be curious how Noah is, the challenge is on, is going to tie in giving and money to our time of worship. So just to put a little pressure on him, see if we can sing about dollar bills and <laughs> so forth like that. Well, we're in the book of Second Corinthians. We're only in chapter 8, not 78. And, um, you know, I grew up with Charlie Brown. And Charlie Brown used to say, good grief, all the time when things in life just went wrong, which was quite often in his life. Well, in, la in the last chapter, chapter 7, we learned about good grief. But it wasn't quite the same as Charlie Brown's good grief. Just as a, a quick recap, the Corinthians, life didn't go well with them on their own account. They distrusted Paul. They listened to, to false teachers and testimonies and so forth. And so Paul calls that a good kind of grief in the sense that he wrote them a stern letter. He, and, and that enabled them to see the error of their ways, and it caused them to repent. Thank you, Susan. You need the young, that's right, the younger generation to set you straight. Now that we all know where we are. So that was a good grief. But we'll move on. So today in chapter 8, Paul completely switches gears to pointing out something that the church did wrong or believers that did wrong to really highlighting something that some local believers did exceedingly well. And he highlights those believers or that particular church and he tells the Corinthian church, here's how I want you to act. That this church or this group of believers 
in their behavior, I want you to try to emulate that or follow that. Now, this morning is the first of four sermons entitled uh, The Grace of Giving. And it's going to take four sermons because in the next two chapters, chapters 8 and 9, Paul completely talks about the idea of giving. And it's a very rich, talk about royal treasury, it's a very, very rich teaching on uh, really the, the concept of money, why we have it, what we're supposed to do with it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend four sermons kind of examining this wonderful teaching on finances and generous giving. You know, it might seem like, because it's so routine, so routine it might seem like it's a, just a really simple thing every Sunday to pass the plate and for individuals to put money in the plate. Simple act of worship. And yet behind that one act are several other acts. As a matter of fact, behind that one act, if someone gives money for the purpose of the Lord, is a whole worldview. It's a whole concept of money and what money is for. So it seems like something simple, but there's so much, there are many, many, many thoughts and understandings and views behind that one act. And we're going to dig into that a little bit. What do we think about money? What's the purpose of money? Is my money God's or is my money mine? Do I have to give? And if I do have to give, how much do I have to give? How am I supposed to know how much to give to God or how much God requires? And is my attitude behind my giving important to God? How much does God really think about or care about me as an individual and how much I give, how I give, and what's behind my giving. Is he even involved in it in any way? Or is it strictly up to me? So we're going to look at all those questions. And in one way or another, we're going to tackle these kind of questions. Because behind every act of giving or the lack thereof is a total mindset, really a total worldview of the purpose of wealth and why I even have what I have, why I don't have what I don't have. So those are the things we're going to tackle. And this passage, and we'll read it in a second, but it talks so much about giving that it's even been called a support letter. Have you ever written a support letter? I know you have. Many of you have because I've received them. I've written support letters myself. And it might be when we plan to go on a missions trip, we need extra finances to do that or to do some kind of ministry or service project, some way to serve the Lord. We do not have all the finances within our own means. And so we ask others if you would consider supporting this endeavor of the Lord. And there's a sense in which this is a support letter that Paul has written. Now, it's a great passage, actually, to use for fundraisers because there's a scriptural principle, as you will see, that we do all play a small part in God's big plan, and that includes God's big financial plan. I'm not using this as a fundraising message. It's just the good thing about expository preaching is you take the whole counsel of God as it's given, and, and it, it helps you in that way. 
so there's no fundraising behind this. It's really just to edify us, to teach us, to help us to understand, and really to liberate us perhaps from erroneous views of wealth and finances. However, I will say, and we'll look at this a little bit this morning, God does put it in people's hearts to support certain things at certain times, to take on certain kingdom projects. So I'm not going to say that God won't put it in your heart or my heart or somebody's heart by the end or or sometime during this series to do something financially. I don't know. God might do that. But that's not my intention here. So... My hope is that by the end of these sermons that we'll, we won't see money uh, with the same understanding that we have. And I have been very, very blessed by this study because everything that God says about wealth and money, it sets my heart free. It just, because money can, can enslave us, especially as Americans, Money can really, really enslave us. And it was so refreshing to be reminded about God's understanding of wealth. It's so liberal. And, and so I'm excited about that, and I hope that it changes our minds and our hearts. You know, we live in a culture that uses people to serve the love of money. And yet God uses money to serve the love of people and to serve the love of of God. So with that said, let's look at the 15 verses found in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Now, accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he would or should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should simply should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness 
as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. We're not going to tackle all of that this morning, but we're going to dive right in. So first of all, God's grace given to the heart we see in the first four verses. So God is a great gift giver. Everything we have is the gift of God. And God gives grace. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given. So God gave grace to this group of believers, the Macedonian churches there in the the northern part of Greece. We're talking about grace. You you can't get very far if you're going to read your Bible without hitting this word or coming upon the word grace. It's something as Christians we use all the time. We throw it around here every Sunday, the word grace. So it's no surprise to see it in this passage. The word grace has to do with uh, giving. It's the, the word charis. Perhaps you've heard the word charismatics. And the idea is that God gives us or the gifts of the Spirit. So the word grace has to do with giving, has everything to do with giving. Uh, if you look at our website, you will see that we make a statement as a church that we adhere to the doctrines of grace. What are the doctrines of grace? They're all the truths that surround the great truth of salvation by grace. In other words, salvation is a gift that God gives to us. God's a gift giver. By his very nature, he gives good things, wonderful things. It's an act of something that comes from God, and it is often understood as something that's undeserved. In other words, you really didn't have it coming to you. You didn't work for it. It's just something that God gives you as a generous, well-meaning gift for his glory. He is the great giver. So let's just think about this word grace, because we're so used to it. We use it so often that we might kind of forget its true meaning and everything that is that surrounds it. So grace, it's a gift, it's an act of kindness, and here's how the Dictionary of the New Testament puts it. It denotes the kind turning of one person to another as expressed in an act of assistance. So it is giving someone something that they may need or that you know that they need that will assist them, that will make them up. More joyful, a better person. It's it's meeting a need in that sense, whether they realize it or not. And we took we talked a little bit about this this morning in Galatians. We talked about covenant, and it has to do with God gave a covenant. He made a covenant as the sovereign. We talked about Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham Abraham didn't ask for it. God came to him and sovereignly promised. Salvation by faith or righteousness by faith. It's, it's a good thing that God does for our well-being. It's, it's a finding favor. It's a kindness, an undeserved kindness. And it comes from a mind that is benevolent, from God's mind that is always thinking about the goodness of others and the well-being of others as he designed it. So grace is also not just a gift, but it's very relational. Uh, it's 
It's thoughtful. It's warm-hearted as opposed to cold-hearted. So, like, I could just randomly uh, pick somebody in here, and even right now, not in real life because I don't have it, but take out a $100 bill and just say, here, this is for you. Now, why did I do that? Well, I might have done that so you guys are really impressed with me. Or maybe I'm a drug dealer, and I want to give this person money to feed the addiction. Because then I can actually make money from them. So I gave a gift. They, you didn't deserve it. But what's behind it? What's the motive? So money passes through people. changes hands. But what's behind it? When we talk about this idea of grace and giving or biblical giving, it's relational. It's warm. It's for, always for the good. It's something very attentive and, and very thoughtful. It's... it's Bringing into people's lives things that will really benefit them. Grace gifts are are given with the disposition of of the giver and it's attached to the gift. They're not separate. So we we want to understand God's grace and even our own giving in in those relational, warm-hearted, thoughtful terms. It's a very purposeful thing. So ideally... The attitude behind the gift is as kind, benevolent, and generous as the gift itself. So as you, were, as you read the word grace in this passage, and grace is oft, uh, frequently mentioned in this passage, be thinking about that. Uh, the giver is giving to be a blessing. They understand it. They know what a blessing is, and they want individuals to be blessed So it's a thoughtful, other-centered, heartfelt, personal thing. Now, this is important to understand because it helps us understand why we give and how we are to give. Paul wants the Corinthian believers, he says, to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So before the gift, this great gift that the Macedonians gave, which was an act of grace to bless others, the gift of grace itself was given to them by God. So in, in this passage, in this understanding, it's, it's, these are an incredible accumulation or combination of words and concepts because... We know that the Macedonians experienced tremendous delight, excitement, and joy, like a a memorable experience in their lives. And they experienced this because they found it in themselves, in their worldview of wealth, to give to another. And yet that very experience of joy came because God gave them the grace to give to others. So God knew that this would be a beneficial gift for them. He provided for them an opportunity to experience, I would say, kingdom joy. Not just worldly joy, but kingdom joy. So he slips in there that gift of grace for them. And then, in, in essence, he puts it in their hearts. And they find themselves desiring to do something, to act in a way, to live out their salvation. And it happens to be, in this passage, giving generously. 
So he gave them something or he put something in them that wasn't there to begin with. It wasn't really their idea necessarily. But he decided, you need this and I'm going to give this to you. So God puts things in people's heart. That's an important concept when it comes to sharing our wealth, how to use our wealth. The living God puts things in people's heart. In verse 16, the Apostle Paul, we will read, put it in Titus's heart. What did he put in Titus's heart? Titus has this incredible care for the Corinthian churches, the Corinthian church. He really loves them. Like he, he has them on his mind. He prays for them often. And it's because God put it in his heart to do that. And that's how things often work. And there's a lot of, sometimes we, we have this greater urge or inspiration to do one thing over another. Why? Because God put it in our heart. He doesn't put everything equally or in equal measures amounts in people's heart. Just like he gives us different gifts for his glory. He might burden our heart or inspire our heart to meet certain needs or to minister to certain people, to live out our salvation in certain ways that he knows will benefit us, will benefit them, and bring glory to himself. He's an amazing God in this sense. So we want, we want to think about wealth and resources and what we have and what we don't have in the sense of we have it for a purpose. And God will put it in our hearts in, to guide us and lead us through the Spirit in how to use these things. The end result of this kind of grace giving, of course, is that all would be blessed. Now, the Macedonians absolutely enjoyed this grace. They loved this spiritual experience. And they loved having their hearts worked on by God. Do do we love having our hearts worked on by God? Because God has our best interest and his glory in mind. He knows what we need the most. So really, we should be very desirous to put our hearts in God's workshop, if you will. Because we, we should know that we're going to come out looking better. Might be some, some pain involved in the repair shop. But we know we're going to come out more joyful. We're going to come out understanding and grasping truth and reality better than we went in. The Macedonians were very excited to have experienced God's grace in this way. So what they had an opportunity uh, to do or to be a part of in God's kingdom was there was a need among the churches. Remember, this is the churches are just getting started. I mean, they're starting to grow. The gospel's going out. People are getting saved and they're joining local groups or ec- the ecclesia of believers, the gathering of believers. In Jerusalem, scholars believe there was a famine at this time. And so the believers in Jerusalem, they were, they were hard-pressed. They were short on food, short on funds. Uh, you know, we, we don't understand that. I've never experienced a famine. I have fasted before. Not my favorite thing. But I have not experienced a famine where they're just, you go to the cupboard and there's nothing there. This is real for some cultures, and this is what they believe was the context behind this. So the Macedonians picture in their minds, these believers, our fellow believers in Jerusalem, are, are really having to scrape to get by here. 
I want to help. God put it in their hearts to help them so that they would have what they needed to survive. So they take up a collection. And in the midst of taking up this collection, the Apostle Paul doesn't go into detail, but he tells us that they were experiencing affliction of their own. So it wasn't like, man, life is so good. I got this abundance of possessions and wealth. I'm just taking it easy. It's only right for me to give to this church that's experiencing hard times. No, they were experiencing hard times as well. So they didn't wait for circumstances to all be shiny and bright and warm till they were comfortable with it. They were already comfortable with it in the midst of their affliction. And the Apostle Paul says, so based on what God had put in their heart, they want to give. And in verse 3, they gave according to their means. What does it mean to give according to their means? What does it mean to live according to your means? Hopefully, we're all living according to our means. That means we're living according to, we're not spending more than what we make. Otherwise, then we become a burden to others and ourselves perhaps with an accumulation of debt that we can't pay. To live or to give according to their means, in essence, basically says, okay, I, I bring home this much, and I put, I'm going to put this much in this envelope because I know I need it for groceries this month. I'm going to put this much in here because I know I need it for gas or, or for clothes, things that wear out, for utilities, for firewood. I need this to go to the marketplace and get fresh breads and so forth. So you... You, you take what you have. This is what you have to live on. It's your means. And so you also, as believers, as a part of your means, you set aside some money to give to God. Because it honors him. It pleases him. And so that's our means. This grocery is this for clothes, this for gas, whatever. This is for God. We have it worked out. So they did that. But then the Apostle Paul says they gave beyond their means. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that they were like stealing from other people? Saying, man, I ran out of money and I want to give more, so I'm going to take that and sell it and take this and sell it and give it to the Lord. I, you know that I'm being facetious there. So to give beyond your means, if you have your funds allocated properly, then you take some that you had in your grocery money. You take some of that out. And you take some out that you had for clothes. So I'm not going to eat as much this month. I'm not going to eat what I want, perhaps. Or I'm going to scale back maybe even the quantity. I'm going to wear these clothes a little longer. So I can take that money. I, I need it because I know they're going to wear out. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just endure so to give beyond your means is a, a greater cost than to give within your means. It's costly to give within your means. You're giving by your own choice where you could take that money and use it for yourself. But to give beyond your means is more sacrificial. You're really choosing to bear the brunt. And to personally go without so someone else can have something and be enriched by the funds that you have. So they went without so that believers in Jerusalem could have what they needed. 
And here's the amazing thing. They had more joy in giving. And they had more joy without their possessions than they would have had had they kept that money in those envelopes, so to speak. See, that's the grace of God. When, when we, we take the things that we, we need or we know we need or we think we have to have, and there's a sense in which they can control us and even our level of joy, but when God blows all that out of the water because then they give things that they actually do need, but they go without, and yet it is a greater joy to go without than to go with, if you will. That's, that's how the grace of God works. He, he puts things back in their proper order so we're not controlled by them. That greater grace. It, so It's a beautiful picture of the sovereign God just looking down on the believers of Macedonia and saying, in essence, I have something wonderful for you. I want to give it to you. And it's an opportunity for you to experience another level of joy that perhaps you didn't even know was possible. And it's in a, a, a countercultural way, counterintuitive way, and that is for you to give even more than you thought that you could give. And you will experience even more joy than you thought that you could experience in this whole giving process. See, God's grace changes us, and it changes the way we look at wealth. It changes the way we look at living in our, within our own means, it changes the way we look at each other and what you have and what you don't have and the way we look at the investing in the kingdom of God. Well, what's important to God? Where do we see God putting money? What does God invest in, if you will, in this world that we have here that's temporary? How does all that work? The grace of God enables us to understand that. Our tendency, of course, is to allow our possessions to control our joy, uh, to, con to control our circumstances, and really to enslave us instead of liberating us. And how do I know this? Because talking about money can cause people to shrivel right up. You just you mention the word money, and all of a sudden, you're sitting harder on your wallet. <laughs> or you're grabbing your purses and getting them closer to you. There's, there's something in our nature. It's because money actually is very important. And it's not wrong to want to protect our money. It's not wrong to want to be wise and to hold on. I mean, what's the eighth commandment? Do not steal. Is that, so we, is that in there so we can be hoarders? Or is that in there because it's not right? People actually own things in God's economy and God wants them to use those possessions that they own to serve him and glorify him. And you mess that up when you take it from them. There's, there's even king. It's not just about the moral, the immorality about it, but it's a whole kingdom dynamic that takes place in possessions. And so it's, it's okay to want to take our money seriously and protect it rightly, but we want to have a kingdom mindset on it. Otherwise, it will absolutely enslave us. And it will not be a joyful experience to manage our money and to marvel at God's provision for us. So there's a sense in which money is in our veins, if you will. It runs deep into our veins. 
and, and it's, we take it very seriously. Why is this? Well, money is power. Money is power in the sense that it expands your choices of life. So, for instance, if I, have, if I need a pair of shoes and I have a lot of money to spend, then I have lots of choices on what kind of shoes I want to buy. Or, let's just say uh, I have a wife, I have kids, I want a place to raise my family. I want some land. I want a house. And I, I want it to fit my Christian ideals of what a home is even for with hospitality. So if I have, uh, according to the money I have, I it can expand my choices of what kind of house will enable me to fulfill my wishes, my desires, my dreams to honor God in that sense, to raise my family in a certain kind of maybe agrarian atmosphere, if you will. So money in that sense is power because it enables us, at least in some part, to have a little bit of control over our lives. It expands our choices, and that's not a bad thing in and of itself. Um, Having money um, doesn't mean we're going to make wise choices with it, we could also just as easily make very unwise choices with our money. So it doesn't, the choice is, is one thing and the money is another. So money can, can uh, benefit me or it can destroy me. It can absolutely enslave me, bind me, and destroy me. Money in and of itself. So there's a sense in which it, it runs in our veins because of the idea of ownership. And that's why it's okay to protect things that you worked for or that you legally own. The how we make money, what we do with our money, reveals what we truly value. It's just that simple. Uh, where your heart is, your treasure is. God, <clears throat> this week, um, one of the thoughts that popped into my head as I was studying different scriptures and devotionals is that a lot of times... When I want to learn about God, I think I'm just learning about God and his, his wonders. And yet I'm really learning about myself. And God is, is like working to help me be honest with myself. Like to help me know who I really am. So he, it's, it's like that happens. It's a little bit sneaky, but I'm not saying God is sneaky in a bad way. I guess it would be more of a loving, gracious way, a kind way of showing me who I really am. Because we have to be honest with ourselves. Because truth is real. This is all real. God is real. And we, it's not beneficial for us to live in any kind of error. So the Lord's always correcting, I think, or shepherding our thoughts and our hearts. So money or this idea of possession runs deep. How deep does it run? Why? Is money sometimes awkward to talk about? If I use the word giving, man, just shrivel right up. When we were created, God set man in the garden to work it and keep it. So in other words, that's ownership, it's possession, it's responsibility, it's purpose. I want you to do this. Use the abilities I gave you to work this garden. And, of course, obviously, do a good job, be responsible, 
understand what you're working with to my glory. I want it to flourish. And so God gives us things, our abilities, and also material things so that we will work it and keep it. We all have, in our sense, our own little gardens. Our families are our own little gardens. Our marriages are our own little gardens. These are gifts. God gifts us with spouses. He gifts us with children. He gifts us with abilities, uh, intellectual or physical abilities to make money, to bring things into our home in an effort to worship him and serve him. To do well, to excel in these things. I'll talk later in another sermon about the Christian work ethic or the Protestant work ethic. It's the whole transformation that takes place when we come to Christ and what we do, how we work and keep our lives, what we possess, the cars we buy, the houses or what we rent and so forth. It's a reflection of what we value. And God wants us to What he gives us and puts in our possession, he wants us to manage it very well. So in that sense, it runs deep in our veins uh, because we're we're calling the shots on it. It's ownership here. And we can use it to really bring glory to God. So I don't really want you messing with my stuff in that sense. That's one thing if if I want to give it to you or share it with you, but I don't want you coming into my garden And calling the shots, I might gain wisdom if you know more about gardening than I do. But I I feel responsible for what God has given me. And I want to do well with it. Take personal ownership. Care about it. Tend it. So in a sense, we're all um, trustees. We're God's stewards. We're caretakers. Everything you have in your possession given to you by God, you are a caretaker of it. To work it and keep it. For the service and the glory of God. It's in our natures to do this. That's why when people talk about funds and wealth and so forth, it gets a little touchy because in a sense it touches our heart. Now, where it goes wrong is if we begin to allow our possessions to define us. Now, it's one thing for work and possessions to give us purpose in our lives. And that's what God did when he set them in the garden. Work it and keep it. I'm giving you purpose. I'm giving you something to do. But that doesn't define us. What defines us is that we're created in the image of God, right? That's our identity. That's our bedrock of who we are, not our possessions. And how it begins to destroy us, and we know this because this is our culture is when we define ourselves according to our wealth. When we look at a person and we think that they are worth more as a person because of the kind of car they drive. And so we define ourselves, wow, you are a great person. You are a big shot. You are so special living in that great big house. You must be if you have a house that big. If you drive those, if you got a wallet that fat, there's something special about you. And that's a trap. It's a trap because then we begin to define ourselves, and even we, we lean on that to, to draw joy into our hearts and lives based on what we have. But it also operates in the reverse. So if you drive up here in a clunker that drifted into the parking lot, barely made it. Now, what kind of person are you? Worthless. Useless. 
I have a nicer vehicle that's well taken care of, and that should speak to my reputation, should it not? I mean, can't we kind of just categorize people and group people according to their wealth? Because doesn't wealth match the person that you are? Well, it comes into play, but it does not define us. And this trap has a lot of people in America thinking, I, I need money to be something. I'm nothing. I need money to be something. And that's where it is very destructive and very counterproductive. So it's how we use it. It's not our self-worth, but it's how we use it. We can use it constructively or destructively. What does it depend on? Our understanding and the attitude of our heart. How we understand what money is even for. Who are you going to let be your teacher regarding wealth? God or man? It makes a big difference in how we make money, how we spend money. And we don't want to use it to measure our value as a person. So the difference is found in the attitude of the heart, not in the quantity of money that we have or do not have. So second, the heart given to God's grace. So we see that God give this, gave this gift of grace and it, he planted it in the hearts of believers and it just grew to where they gave beyond their means and experienced a tremendous joy. Rather than guarding their wallets and purses, they let them Go. How did this happen? The Apostle Paul is also careful to show us what happened first. Before that giving grace of God came, and he put in their hearts, the Macedonians gave their hearts to God. Verse 5, this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us, You see, this about salvation, this is the saving grace. They, they gave themselves. They accepted this gift. They gave their hearts to God as supreme Lord and King, and it affected how they looked at their money and managed their money. And it's interesting because when you come to God based on the saving grace, the doctrines of grace, you come to him and you realize, I have nothing to give you, God. What am I even doing here? What am I going to pull out of my bag? Whatever it is, it falls so short and you realize the bankruptcy of your own heart. So you realize that you come to God on his terms of grace, undeserved favor and mercy. And that, that sets the pace of how we look at life from that point on. That... God owns everything. Technically speaking, we own nothing and we operate based on his mercy and his grace. And because he was so generous to us, then we are also to be like him, be generous with our time and our resources. So because God is the owner, we understand that everything that we have, we're stewards of it. We're caretakers. We're trustees. Some of us have more than others. Whatever we have or don't have, we are to care well for that, for the glory of God, to work it and to keep it, to use it for God's purpose, not to let it define ourselves or not to 
Not to use it to beef ourselves up so that we are great people of honor, but to use it so that God is honored and exalted. So the Macedonians hear about this need and they can't wait. They're eager. They're begging of all things. Please let me give to this need. I don't don't know that I've ever seen anybody beg uh, to give money. Maybe I have and I've forgotten about it. But that's... That's the power of God and the grace of God. And it brought such joy to them. They sent that money out into the kingdom of God, into the world, to bless the people of God for God's purposes. So money and the wealth and the resources that we have are kingdom tools. They're not just ours to do what we want with. They're ours to honor the Lord. They're kingdom tools. Even little things that we have can make a huge kingdom impact and bless the heart of God. So that we see our resources and our wealth as a powerful kingdom tool. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell in it, it's all God's. It's all God's. And our wealth has been given to us in appropriate Measure to impact the kingdom of God. He puts us all in our own gardens, so to speak. So there is a sense in which we were built for this. We were built to, to, to accumulate. We were built to own things, to manage things, to steward things as God sees fit. It runs in our veins in that way and gives us tremendous purpose and task. And we take good care of them based on what we own. It's a part of being human. We want to be wise. We want to be careful of competing views. There are actually governments adopt financial understanding and views based on their understanding of how the world works, their narrative. Uh, So you have competing financial views in our world based on how they see the nature of man. Say communism or or extreme socialism. These are forms of governments that believe that we should take things away from people and put them in one big pot and pull them together to serve people's needs. And one of the faults of that is that now you really don't have your own garden to work and keep. It's like nobody's really that responsible except the few that get to manage it all or the powers concentrated. Uh, And so some would argue that kind of robs man of his purpose because I'm just like a gerbil on a wheel now. I don't see the results of my finances. And the argument here with the Bible is that by human nature, when when we have it, we're going to take better care of it, work it and keep it uh, better than others because it's ours. You could get into the whole argument about government intrusion into our families and our children. Who is going to take the best care of your kids, God's gift to you? Many would argue, well, you are. They're yours. They're God's gift to you. So you get into this whole idea of management. Let me just quote Keller before moving on. So he says, there's reason... There's reasons why fundamentally Christianity is a different economic system. So capitalism says this. Whose money is it? It's your money. You can do what you want. 
Fundamentally, communism and socialism says, whose money is it? It's the people's, and you must do with it as the community needs. Christianity says, whose money is it? Well, it's God's, and we must do as God directs. So you, you see the difference there. There are different outlooks and forms of managing money, and then there's the Christian form of managing money. It's God's. I'm reminded of a story of the two farmers. I'm sorry, the farmers. The farmer uh, and his wife, they had their own little garden, their own little farmette, and they, that's, they scratched out a living with it, and they were devout believers. They loved God, and they were grateful for all of his positions. Uh, possessions and provisions for them. And one year, uh, the farmer was so ecstatic because one of his prized cows gave birth to twins, twin calves. They were identical. You could not tell them apart. And he went in and shared the good news with his wife. God has blessed us. I'm so humbled and grateful for God's provision that one of these, I'm going to give one of these calves, and he made a, a promise to the Lord, one of these calves is yours, Lord. And when they grow and I take them to that market, the money is all yours. And one day, months and months later, he comes back into the house and he says to his wife, I have bad news. What's that? The Lord's calf died. <laughs> So, not only do we, does God own it all, but he gives it all. And then let's close with verses 8 through 15. It's the richness of grace. It was modeled for us. How do we get this mindset? How do we understand what our lives are about, what our resources are about? Look what Christ did. Look how he operated. You know, verse 9, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that... Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Those riches that Christ gave us, we're talking about kingdom riches, not like, well, you, you got, he gave you this car or whatever. You're talking about belonging, the, the richness of forgiveness, the richness of random, favorable grace gifts from God in our lives. The, the richness of mercy. The richness of belonging and, and kingdom living and, and fellowship and sitting at the table of God. The richness of a very personal relationship and the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit. These things are, are the, the epitome of life and being and existing. And God enriches us with all of these things that we need down to the very core of our souls. And he did it at his own expense. He gave it all. He gave it all. And so there's this kingdom principle here with Christ as our Savior, but also as our example. What kind of mindset are we to have? How are we to live in this world? Because by gathering things, an improper mindset of possessions if, it's, if we have our self-worth tied to it, we're going to hoard or we're going to prodigal. We're going to waste what we have because we want to impress others. Like, so an improper mindset of our wealth affects our lives. Whether we have much or little, we have it to serve God and kingdom purposes. To be generous because God is generous. Let me close with this. So imagine 
you have a uh, you have a deadly disease. You've been diagnosed with it. It is one hundred percent fatal. But there's a cure to this disease, and it is one hundred percent effective. The problem is it's very very costless. Costly. As a matter of fact. In order for you to pay for it, you will be impoverished. It will take everything you worked hard for, all of your savings. You're going to have to sell everything down to the penny. You will have absolutely nothing left in order to possess or get this treatment for your life. So if you're put in that position, what will you tell your doctor? Doctor, I'd love to do this, but I'm afraid I can't afford it. I, I would have nothing left if I did that. Now, what's wrong with that reasoning? So you're, you're going you're gonna to keep your possessions at the expense of your life? So all of a sudden, now that you have all these things that meant so much to you, when you're put in this position of living your life, how much value do your possessions have? See, now they serve a different purpose. Now they serve your life to keep you breathing. But you have to get rid of all of them. It's, a, it's an entirely different perspective and different way. Now the things that I thought I needed so much, well, they're tools. What good does it do me to hold on to something when I have no life? I, what am I going to do with a house if I'm not there to live in it? Or the bank account if I'm not there to spend it? The value concept changes. I have no freedom to do anything with my possessions when I'm under the ground. So this is what it's like to live for Jesus. So he is that which is of the greatest value, the pearl of great price. And that we're even given examples in Scripture of how people just look at their possessions as tools to gain this thing of great value. It changes our perspective. And what we value most will ooze out of us. It oozes out of our thinking. It oozes out of our decisions, our choices, and our living. He is more precious than silver and Christ, his worth, being impoverished, if you will, so that we gain the riches of Christ. So this passage reminds us to, to work, to steward, to give and invest in ways that make an eternal impact. And we're built for it. And we were redeemed for it. And now we can be excited about the opportunity to continue to live it out. May God bless the preaching of his word.